Matthew 3 this morning. Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. Go ahead and find your text. 1 through 12. What has Matthew been showing us so far about Jesus? He has showed us that Jesus has always been the plan. From generation to generation, everything was leading up to this point that we're now reading about 2,000 years after it happened. Everything was leading up to this person of Jesus. And it's never just been exclusively uh, about the Jews. Even today, we're reading in our, in our Sunday school lesson, Exodus 19 and 20, um, we, we see that the purpose of forming this nation was for them to be a kingdom of priests to the entire world, all the other nations. And, and that would be manifest in the person of Jesus. Gentiles make up Jesus' lineage, and they will make up a part of His new kingdom as well, as we have already begun to see in Matthew. Even his name reveals his identity and his purpose. Yeshua is the Hellenized form of the Hebrew word Joshua. Joshua means, Joshua means save his people from their sins. It is exactly what Jesus would do. And then we looked at the birth narrative. Um, we get a glimpse of people understanding from the very beginning that Jesus would be a very different kind of king. We see Magi coming from the east to worship him, uh, much to the consternation of King Herod. Uh, Jesus would be a very disruptive king, and we... Looked further into that disruption last week. This is what Matthew is revealing about Jesus. He's coming and he's, and he's come and, and this is what it's going to be like. And it's, it's just, it's disruptive. And so now in Matthew chapter 3, uh, we're going to read about John the Baptist. This is Jesus' relative. John had a prophetic ministry. It came before Jesus' ministry. So the text that we're looking at today is kind of like the, the door is going to open to Jesus' ministry today. It's just about set to begin. This is, and John the Baptist is like the, the opening act for, for the Jesus concert that's going to come through the rest of Ram Matthew, if that, that analogy helps you. So um, will that opening act be any good? That's what, we want to, that's what we're going to find out here in just a little bit. So stand with me. Let's read Matthew 3, 1 through 12 together. Matthew 3, 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, "'Brood of vipers!' Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance and don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you 
with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. This is the word of the Lord. You, you can be seated. Okay, so the same thing is true with this passage as has been true with the previous passages. I am not going to unpack all of this. We will never get out of Matthew prior to my retirement if I stopped and just worked on every little thing that's in every little nuance in this text. So from 30,000 feet, okay, what is it that Matthew is trying to teach us in this passage? Why is it, from a 30,000 foot view, what is Matthew keen on including, why is, why is Matthew keen on including this experience in his gospel? So on, on one level, I, I think it's very consistent that Matthew would, would, did, would do this because um, he is, um, he, it's, he's been doing it. Like he's, he's going to length after length after length to show by, um, that, that Jesus was always the plan. Uh, there are passages of the Old Testament referenced in Matthew almost more than any gospel, perhaps. Um, and he's, he's very intent on showing that Jesus was always the plan. And John the Baptist, too, for that, for that matter. You know, from Matthew's perspective, Jesus couldn't be the Messiah if he didn't fulfill what the Old Testament revealed about the Messiah. So Matthew wants to make sure that we understand the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament prophecies that are about the Messiah. So he's doing that here um, in Matthew 3 as well, and also about John the Baptist. But, so he's doing it for that purpose. I, I think that's, that's true and right and good, and we've kind of hit that over and over again. So I don't want to land there. But there's something higher there is something a little more broad and a little more practical that I think Matthew is trying to communicate in this verse. And here's the sentence. This is the one sentence I want you to walk out of here today. Jesus was worth the wait, but he wasn't what some were waiting for. Jesus was worth the wait, but he wasn't what some were waiting for. And I want to show you that in the, in the text this morning. The first thing I want to show you is that Jesus was worth the wait. Look at verse 1 through 3, verses 1 through 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and he was saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then verse 3, uh, Matthew, the gospel writer, explains, For he, John the Baptist, is the one spoken of, through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. So there are a couple of things going on here. Do you see this? Number one is that, is that, that, that Matthew is, is keen to explain that, um, that the reason John the Baptist's ministry is valid and is important is because it fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. And therefore, we should listen to what he's saying. And John the Baptist is saying in verse 2, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, have you ever waited a really long, long time for something that you truly desired, right? And, and when you got that thing, like. What a wonderful feeling that is, right? That I love that feeling of delayed gratification. 
delayed gratification. It's delayed. It took a long time for it to get there. He had to wait on it, but it was gratified because it actually arrived, right? We talk a lot. That's our phrase at home. We use that a lot, delayed gratification. John the Baptist's ministry was a delayed gratification for the Jewish people. So between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of your New Testament, there were 400 years where God did not talk to his people. That's the, what we would call the intertestamental period, right? It's the time between the old, the end of the old and the beginning of the new. 400 years where nothing was said. No new information. We have, we have no new information from God at this time regarding uh, the, the future of the people of Israel and regarding the coming of the Messiah. We have no new information at this time. And that was the message for 400 years. And one of the last things that was said at the end of the Old Testament period was this prediction that the Messiah of God was going to enter history. It was going to be Emmanuel. It was going to be God with us. That God was going to come down from heaven into earth. That there would be a visitation uh, by, by God through the Messiah. That heaven would come into history. That eternity would come into to time. That God would appear on the screen. And in order to get God's people ready for this, there would be a man and we know him now as um, John the Baptist, who would come and fulfill a prophecy. So if you went back to your Bibles to Matthew chapter three, or Malachi chapter 3, you would, see, uh, you would see where God says, I'm going to send my messenger to get you ready for my visitation. You see this also in chapter 4, the last three verses. Elijah shall return, said Malachi. And when Elijah returns, he's going to restore all things and he's going to call people back to me, back to the Lord. In Luke chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, you see John the Baptist came and he would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah, right? So John the Baptist that we're reading about here in this text today, he is the fulfillment of a 400-year-old prophecy. He was the delayed gratification of hearing from God, of seeing God speak to His people. When I was um, a young boy around Luke and Abby's age, I mentioned this last week, you know, a bicycle was the world to me. I could go all over town with a great deal of freedom. But what I didn't tell you <laughs> is that more than a handful of times, my bikes were stolen from our front yard, from our backyard, from my carport, chains or no chains, they were just stolen several times, okay? Um, and at one time, it was stolen in the spring of my childhood year. And I did not receive from my parents any other form of alternative transportation. Not a scooter, not a new bike, not a used bike, just nothing. I was told that I was going to have to wait seven, eight months before I could get a new bike, which was, of course, Christmas. And so I waited. I, you know, now that I'm sitting back here as a parent, it's like a miracle my parents made it that long because you know I drove them crazy. They take me somewhere, do something, always because I, I had so much freedom that had been removed from me. And now I, was gonna, I could walk. Who wants to walk? I mean, I still like walking. Um, you know, it's, so uh, it's amazing the patience that my parents had, much less that I had. And that Christmas, 
We were to be in North Carolina for the holidays. My grandfather had a little condominium that's still in the, still in the family. And uh, there it's like 60 years old, but it's still there. And, um, and you know, we would trade, you know, around the family, we would trade, you know, 10 days there, 10, whatever. So with that, that Christmas, it was our turn. And so we went to North Carolina for the holidays. And I, to this day, I don't know how my parents got a bicycle into that van without me noticing it. But when I got up Christmas morning, there was a brand new Dallas Cowboys banana seat bicycle with pom-pom threads on the handlebars. <laughs> I tore up the mountains of North Carolina in the winter, right? Because, I mean, what a huge payoff, right? I was on cloud nine because of the delayed gratification of getting that bicycle. Also, right now in my office, which is also a six-by-four closet with just with bookshelves and a desk and a computer, uh, but it's my office, and it's mine. You can't get in there. I can close the door and lock it. It's awesome. There is on my shelf a baseball. It's a major league baseball. A couple of years ago, no, four years ago, when did, the, when did the Red Sox win the World Series? 2018 with Mookie Betts. Does anybody know? 16. 16. Thank you. Mookie Betts, who is from Nashville, uh, was, the, was the right fielder for the Red Sox. Now he's in the Dodgers. You know, Benedict Arnold over there has moved, moved to L.A. But he built a house in Franklin, so I'm sure it's all fine. Um, I, I, I had a friend in, at the church, so I, I got to preach one, one Sunday at Grace Community Church, and I was also teaching a Sunday school class. And in that Sunday school class, that same day, the, um, one of the, I used uh, the Red Sox as an illustration because they are America's team. And so one of the guys came up to me and goes, man, I don't, I don't know if you know this, but I played baseball at such a high school with, with Mookie. And we're still friends. Like, I've got his cell number right now. He was name-dropping big time, you know. He's like, he's like I'm actually going to a game uh, in Atlanta, when the, when the Red Sox play, and we're going to see him, like we've already got it reserved, like to, to see him. Um, do you want me to get you a baseball signed by Mookie for your dad? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And so I bought, I said, well, I bought four. I went to Amazon. You can get them. They're $16. Four, four Major League Baseballs. And I went to, you know, a couple of Sundays later, and I gave it to him. I said, here are the balls. Get them signed. He said, yeah, no, no problem. Well, you know, it got closer and closer to time, and we got about a week or two before he goes, hey, man, like, I've, I've kind of been working on this thing with, with Mookie. It's just a little awkward to take four. I can take one. I'm like, okay, I, I get that. I mean, I, get, I totally get that. Now I can't have one. Now Trey and Jonathan can have one. It's just my dad, just my dad. But that's okay. He'll leave it to me because my brother doesn't care about baseball, so I'll still have one. Like, it was totally, you know, like that kind of mentality in your head. I don't know if you're that selfish, but I am sometimes. So I gave him one, I gave him one baseball. To, for Mookie Betts to sign. The game has come and gone. Mookie's in Los Angeles. I still don't have a baseball. I'm still waiting on that baseball. Why? Because he didn't even really go. I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. But he didn't, he didn't go. And I don't, I, don't have, I don't have this baseball. I, it's, an, it's an unfulfilled sense. Like I'm waiting to be gratified because it hasn't happened yet. It's not going to happen, is it? It's not going to happen. Thank you, Luke. I appreciate that. So you just that sense of waiting for something that I want you to feel. I think that's what, I think to, to understand the gravity of what is taking place in this passage. John the Baptist promised in Malachi 3 and 4 is here. 
God is speaking for the first time in 400 years. And what he's saying is not it's going to be another 400 years. He's saying is the kingdom of heaven is near. It is, it is essentially arrived. God is now talking and he's saying something very incredible. The Messiah is coming. He's, he's here. So that, that sense of gratification that the Jewish people are feeling is just, it's impossible for us not to truly, truly feel the weight of. But I'm, I'm trying to get us there. And so what Matthew is doing here, he's not just showing us that like a professor would show us like John the Baptist has fulfilled the scriptures and Jesus fulfills the scriptures. It's not, that's true, but, it, but that's almost heartless. He's, what he's doing is he's demonstrating this, how, how, um, how significant the John the Baptist's ministry was as the inauguration of Jesus' ministry be, and how Jesus was worth the wait and how the, the sense of delayed gratification plays into the, the experience and the emotions and the feelings and the faith of the people. So Jesus was worth the wait, but was he what they thought he was going to be? Did Jesus meet expectations. What John the Baptist did, which is why you have verse 4. Look at verse 4. John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and honey. So the camel hair clothing and the leather belt, that's not just a demonstration about John's commitment to a simple life, although he certainly had that like other prophets. These are also things that tie him directly to uh, be a prophet that's cast in the uh, in the uh, image of Elijah and the power of Elijah, because Elijah dressed similarly in that regard. He ate locusts. That's the really big giant grasshoppers that take over every 7 or 11 or 12 years or whatever they think it is in Nashville. Um, and by the way, people still eat these over there. This is a very common way to, to, to get protein in this part of the country. Wild honey. These all connect John with Jewish prophets in general. John preached not just with his words, but he preached with his clothes. He didn't just preach with his words, he preached with his food also. John fit the bill. If you, were, if you thought, well, if there's going to be a prophet of God who's going to speak, John met all the expectations. He looked just like a prophet, exactly like a prophet. He behaved like a prophet, lived like a prophet, ate like a prophet, and he spoke like a prophet. He used words like brood of vipers, right? He's, he is cut in the, the cloth. The apple did not fall too far from the tree, if you will. Okay. But what a, he almost did it too well. You remember in the Gospel of John, where, where the, John has a, a more, uh, a not different perspective, but a more fleshed out perspective of the conversation between John and the, and the Jewish leaders. There's some confusion about whether or not John may actually be the Messiah. His ministry is so powerful and so impactful, and, uh, and, and there's such a buzz. He met all the expectations. But what about Jesus? Well, to answer that question, we, we have to, what, we're, what we're going to do is look at verses 7 through 12, and we're going to look at it through the lens of what were the expectations of the Jewish leaders at that time about what the Messiah would be like. And John's retort tells us that. Look at verses 7 through 12. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, by the way, there's a very big difference between coming to be baptized and coming to see a baptism. He said to them, brood of vipers, who warned... 
you may not, we don't actually know what that means, but it's not pleasant, right? It's not a compliment. Uh, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance and don't presume to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees and therefore every tree that doesn't produce good fruit, going back to uh, fruit of repentance, verse 8, uh, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I'm baptizing with water for repentance, but there's one who's coming after me who's more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winning shovels in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather wheat into his barn, and the chafe will burn with fire that never goes out. So we don't, we don't know the details, but the sense of it from Matthew's gospel at large, and in this passage more specifically is that these Pharisees and these Sadducees are coming to the baptism, possibly even for baptism, but not for the reasons that John is pronouncing and calling people to be baptized. The Pharisees and Sadducees are coming for baptism with a desire to show this watching world, these watching people, how ready they were for the Messiah, but they weren't truly repenting in association with the baptism, which also means that who they expected the Messiah to be and who he actually was, wasn't lining up. Okay, You can see this very clearly in verse 9. John says directly to them, Don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. See, whoever the Messiah was going to be for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I'm coming to the practical gang. Hold tight, okay? Whoever the Messiah was going to be in the eyes of these leaders... Whatever he was going to be, in their minds, he would never take away from the fact that their ancestry to Abraham made them adequate and right in God's sight. He would never take that away. I mean, this is a huge part of the book of Romans, by the way. Paul trying to untangle common Jewish belief at the time that your mere ancestry with Abraham made you a true Jew and that made you right before God. And here is John the Baptist on the, on the eve of Jesus' ministry and he's doing the exact same thing Paul did after. John the Baptist is saying, your expectation is that this Messiah would not dare negate ancestry from Abraham as something that makes you right with God. And what I'm telling you guys is, if he wanted to, he could make ancestors of Abraham out of the rocks I'm standing on in this river right now. It's got nothing to do with your ancestry. And if you read through the Old Testament, God repeatedly cuts off the Israelites, and then he saves a remnant of them time and time again. And yet here in this intertestamental period, that 400 years of silence the general theological consensus of the Jewish people began to be that um, descent from Abraham, descent from Abraham, that is what makes you 
right with God. And what John is saying and what Jesus was saying, what Paul was saying, what all the, the whole New Testament has been saying this from the beginning. It's not new. It's just you, how the, the people contort and twist Scripture is that not only will God, could God narrow Israel down to a group of people, He could raise up authentic children of God out of stones if He wanted to. That's how inadequate counting on your ancestry with Abraham is for being right with God. That's how inadequate counting on anything to be right with God, other than who God provides in the Son, Jesus. So, so just, in that, just in that one little retort, that one, uh, that one statement of John the Baptist to the Pharisees, we see there's this sense of... of um, of delayed gratification for some, and so there's there's repentance and um, and there is there's basically a revival taking place. But for others, they're they're bringing with it this sense of expectation that he's not going to disrupt settled theology, settled theology, right? He, but and uh, and therefore they're not truly understanding what God is about to do. They don't truly understand what it means for the kingdom of heaven to be near. So what? Okay. So let's talk about let's talk about gratification, delayed gratification, and let's talk a little bit about um, uh, let's talk about expect, expectations in Jesus. Okay. Number one, gang, can we can we live like we are actually in a time of fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah? Here's what, I, here's what I mean by that. We are, if you know, a timeline of redemptive history, this is the creation, and that's where Jesus is going to come back. And this was the cross right here. We're over here, gang. We're not in this weird intertestamental period over here where God is not talking, as God is on them. We, we have some anxiety and some delayed gratification about whether this is actually going to happen. We're not here where it's, where it's historically happening and unfolding before our eyes and we wonder, like, Jesus died. Is this real? Like, what is, I thought he was going to be this king. That's not there either. We know that the kingdom of heaven has come in the person of Jesus Christ and he's made us right with God through his death and his resurrection. And everybody who believes in what he's done is a part of the kingdom of God. And now we're just waiting one more time. One more time for him to come finally and for good and to reign over all of heaven and earth. And we're going to reign with him. If that is true, if we know that our sin has been handled and we know he's actually king of the universe and we've seen him come once already. If we're living here, doesn't that mean that we can live a little bit differently, a little bit more confidently with a great deal of faith? no matter what happens in our life, with a great deal of joy, with no matter what happens in our life, can we live like the promise has been fulfilled? That's a big deal. That's a big deal. The pandemic can't touch that. And, uh, nothing can touch that. Uh, the most... Uh, I'll, I won't go down... Like I'm just, I, There's so many things that I could list there, but I don't want to hurt our... I want to like hit you in the stomach too much. Like I'm trying to build you up. Let's live like the gospel's real. Let's live like, he, let's live like Jesus came. Let's, let's live like he kicked sin and the death's tail. Okay? And that he reigns and he's coming back. We don't have... We're not here in the intertestinal period where there are three steps to go. We're here. We're in the last leg. We've rounded the corner. He's coming back finally. Let's live, let's live like that's true. Let's, let's live like that's true. We don't have delayed gratification. 
as much as they did. We've got a lot of truth and satisfaction. We own the gospel. Now we're just waiting for the final rain, right? It's right here. We're right there on the cusp of it. So let's live like it's true, okay? While we're doing that, let's line up our expectations about Jesus with how Jesus has been revealed to us in the scriptures. You know, I find it interesting, John's statement here. He's got a super clear mind about exactly who Jesus is and what the Messiah is going to be about. He's got it. How come the people who've studied the Bible their whole life don't have that? How could they miss it? How could they... How could they miss it? If John the Baptist has got it, and it's, you know, it's not because he's family, right? How could, they, how could they miss it? They brought expectation over expectation of expectation upon Jesus, and they got a distorted theology, and so that when they actually showed, they didn't know what to make of him. And I think sometimes the thing is, especially those of us who grew up in church, like we... we we, we have expectation over time. Over time, we just build up expectation over expectation over expectation. And when Jesus actually shows up and does something, we don't really know what to make sense of it. I, you're gonna, this is going to happen through Matthew. I'm not, I'm not going to have to spend a whole lot of... I'm not, I'm the, uh, there's actually nothing left on my screen. I don't know why I'm looking down. Because there's, um, you're going to see this as we go through the Gospels. Jesus is going to interact with people that you would never interact with. Jesus is going to say some things to, to people that you would be, you know, socially awkward, is putting it mildly. Uh, Jesus is going to teach some things that I, if you're a liberal Democrat or a social conservative, you are going to get your, your worldview challenged. It's time for what Matthew is going, what reading Matthew is going to allow us to do. It's so many things, but one of the things it allows us to do is to analyze our preconceived notions about what we think about Jesus and compare them to how he's actually revealed to us in the scriptures. And if we will do that, our minds will be blown. Our minds will be blown. And that's true. If you think you've got it all lined up, oh, brother, you just wait. Matthew 5 is coming. Matthew 6 is coming. Matthew 7 is coming. Where he says, Many will say to me, I did all of the right things. How? And, and Jesus is going to say, I don't even know who you are. Whew. That's so many of us, isn't it? Oh, I hope not. It could be, he's, going to, he's going to blow our minds. And it's absolutely terrifying to me that the people in the New Testament for whom that fall into that category are the people who knew the Old Testament so well and knew their Bible so well. Folks, let's make sure that our expectations and our, our thoughts and our hopes about Jesus actually line up with how he's revealed to us in the scriptures. And if we'll do that, we will live like that day is coming. Make a huge difference. All right, let's, let's, let's pray. Um, Father, we're grateful for your word. Uh, Man, there's so much. There's so much. But we're, we, we, we ask that you would, you would give us a sense, of, um, a sense of confidence that where we live on the timeline of redemptive history would manifest itself in the way that we live our lives, that we live with, this, with gratitude, 
that we live with a sense of satisfaction and joy because we know that Jesus has come. We know that he was God. We know that he was the Messiah. We know that he paid the price for our sin. We know that he overcame the, uh, the, the power of sin and death through the resurrection. We know that he sits at the right hand of the Father and reigns the universe, this world included. So we know that. We know that. So help us live as kingdom people with that sense of joy and that sense of gratification and that sense of satisfaction and that sense of confidence and that sense of boldness and that sense of hope and that sense of faithlessness that comes with that. And as we do, as we study the scriptures to do just that, help us align our convictions with Jesus in the scriptures. Let us hold very loosely to the preconceived notions that we might have. We are prone to wander in our minds, prone to become calloused in things that, that aren't uh, necessarily pure and right and true and aligned with the Scripture. If it can happen to a Pharisee and a Sadducee, it can sure, sure happen to us. And so we ask for protection that we would live open-hearted, open-minded to the Jesus revealed to us in the Scriptures as a church and as individuals and do it for your glory and our good.